So if you are visiting with us this morning, we'll be at the very end of Acts chapter 13. In business, hiring managers and and marketing companies sometimes use a method called uh, forced choice assessment to get the information that they would like to glean from you, whether they're hiring you or whether you're uh, possibly going to be purchasing their products. Now, these questions these, on these force choice assessments are designed to uh, figure out your tendencies or your preferences depending on the purpose of the exercise. So, examples of force choice questions are questions like, which statement least describes you at work? And you can only select one. A, I'm goal-oriented. B, I'm organized. Or C, I'm a team player. So if you're like me, you spend most of your time trying to figure out what they're actually asking you rather than actually just answering the question. Or more simply, agree or disagree. A good friend always supports you. Which is most accurate? Peace is best secured through A, military strength, or B, diplomacy. What makes these questions potentially uncomfortable is having to only choose one answer or only being able to choose between two answers without context and without nuance. Yes or no. Agree or disagree. Now, in today's passage we are confronted with the reality that there are only two options when it comes to the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. Will you A, receive it, or B, reject it? There are no other options. The word of the Lord is the ultimate dividing line for all humanity. The word of the Lord is living and active. It frees and it saves and it encourages and it unites. But the word of the Lord is also sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, it also divides. It divides deeply down to bone and marrow, soul and spirit, even the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And it divides broadly, separating all people into one of two groups and only two groups forever and ever and ever. Our passage this morning is Acts 13 verses 44 through 52. And we'll pick up in verse 42 just to be reminded of the context. You remember that last week we heard Paul's first recorded sermon in Acts that he preached at Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue. So what we're talking about this morning is the response to Paul's message of the gospel. As they went out, that is after Paul finished preaching at the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout 
converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Father, would you, would you move among us this morning? Would you cause in us an increased love for your word? Would you cause in us to rise an increased sensitivity to the leading of your spirit? Would you move within us to increase our burden for the lost? And would you move in such a way that our boldness to proclaim your word would be greatly increased as a people. To that end, lead us, I pray, in the blessed and powerful name of Jesus, our beloved Lord. Amen. So, four times in just our relatively short section of Scripture, we see the phrase, the word of the Lord, or the word of God. And we see here that it's, it's living and active. I say that because in verse 44, the word of the Lord gathers the whole city. In verse 46, Paul and Barnabas boldly proclaim that the word of God was, was actually speaking prophetically even as the Jewish people thrust it aside. Verse 48, the Gentiles rejoiced and the word of the Lord was glorified by the people who received its, its life-giving truth. And then in verse 49, the word of the Lord continues to spread throughout the region on its way to the ends of the earth. So our focus this morning can be summarized like this. Since the word of the Lord is always living and active, we need to be prepared to stand firm in its truth and to spread its message. Since the word of the Lord is always living and active, we need to be prepared to stand firm in its truth and to spread its message. Now, 
since the word of God is also the dividing line for all humanity, we'll first look at what happens when they reject the word in verses 44 through 47, and then what it looks like when the word is received in verses 48 through 52. So last week we heard Paul preach that first sermon. It was a message, as, as, as Mitchell taught us, that was just laser-focused on Jesus. It was laser-focused on Jesus and, and the good news of salvation that is found in his name and in his name alone. And that message was available to all who would receive it. So, on the following Sabbath, that is, as it brings us to our passage, so many people gather to hear the message of the gospel in this largely Gentile region that it really appears, Luke says, as if the whole city has come together to hear the gospel proclaimed. When I picture that, it's extremely emotional for me. As someone who loves God's word, as someone who wants other people to know God's word and to love God's word, the thought that the whole city, the whole community gathered to hear the good news about Jesus proclaimed is nothing short of stunning to me. Oh, if that would be true in this place during our time. Pray to that end, brothers and sisters. One of the most disheartening prophecies, I think, in all, all of the scriptures is found in Amos 8.11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Can you imagine if you had a desire in your heart to, to hear God's word proclaimed? And you were going from coast to coast, begging someone to proclaim to you the good news of the gospel, and you couldn't find anyone. Brothers and sisters, may that never be true in our time. Let us, let us never take for granted the unprecedented access that we have to the word of God. Therefore, let us treasure God's word in our hearts. First, that we might not sin against him. Let us treasure the word of God because all scripture is God-breathed. God 2 Timothy 3. It is a lamp for our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119. Let's cherish God's word because those who hear the word and obey it are blessed, Luke 11, verse 28. Therefore, we are commanded not to live on bread alone, but on, on every word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. Let us treasure God's word because every word of God is 
flawless. Proverbs 30 and verse 5. The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19 and verse 7. Let us honor God's word because it always, it always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. Isaiah 55, 11. Let us revere God's word because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Isaiah 40 and verse 8. In fact, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord will never pass away. And let us be in awe of God's word because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. Praise God for the word made flesh. In other words, praise God for our beloved Savior. Pray, brothers and sisters, that in the coming days, people will so yearn, will so yearn to hear the word of God that we're going to have to figure out how to fit them all in. Imagine how glorious it would be if you knew you had to get here by sunrise or you had no hope of being close enough to actually hear God's word being proclaimed. Oh, can you imagine how glorious that would be? What should have, what should have been a glorious day which should have been an absolutely celebratory, glorious day as the gospel was proclaimed to a new region. It turned, it turned in an instant. As when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken of by Paul, reviling him, verse 45. What is tragic about this scene is that having rejected the word, the Jews then immediately seek to oppose the word to try to prevent other people from receiving it. Rejection and opposition to the word of God go hand in hand. What is fascinating is that Luke attributes their gospel opposition to jealousy. He does that also back in chapter 5, and he'll do it again in chapter 17. But the question becomes, why is that the case? Why would the Jews be jealous that Gentiles on a large scale are coming to hear the message of salvation through Jesus Christ? The Savior is from the Jews. Why would they be jealous? They are to be a light to the nations. Why would they be jealous? I mean, typically devout Jews hoped that God-fearing Gentiles might attend the synagogue with the intent of being circumcised and, and submitting themselves to the yoke of the Torah, that is, to the law of Moses. So again, think it through with me. Why are they jealous? Paul and Barnabas show up preaching that a right relationship with God comes by faith in Christ, not through the law of Moses. 
The reason is because Jesus has already fulfilled the law on behalf of anyone who places their faith in him. Do you see what's at stake here? This is an issue about how a person is saved. Everything the Jews had learned since birth about how they were to relate to God through the law have proven to be utterly futile in actually making them acceptable to God. And now here come Paul and Barnabas. And the Gentiles are coming in mass numbers to hear the good news that they too could be, could be rightly reconciled to God. That someone has fulfilled the law of God on their behalf. That they could become members of God's chosen people without having to carry the burden of the law. Which proved to be too much for the Jewish people themselves. So, our passage in Acts, in many ways, helps us to understand the controversy that goes throughout the book of Acts. What is at stake for Paul is nothing less than the destruction, the absolute destruction of the church. Think about the tone of the letter to the Galatians. Because Pisidian Antioch is in the region of Galatia. What's fascinating about it is the the letter that we heard read, that Mitchell read to us earlier, was written to the people to whom Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel at this moment in this region. Recall from our reading of Galatians 2 that Paul was dismayed. He was dismayed that even Barnabas... Even Barnabas was led astray into thinking in a way that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That is the gospel that the two of them preached here in Pisidian Antioch on the first missionary journey. Paul said it this way to Peter. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is how Paul frames it in Galatians 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. This message of free grace offered to all people through faith in Christ provoked jealousy to many Jews to the point that they vehemently opposed the message. Think about, yes, think about how ironic it is. Grace is sometimes too much to bear. Free grace. You cannot make yourself righteous in God's sight. You need another to take your place. I don't want any part of that message, some of them said. And I don't want anybody else to either. Why do the Gentiles get to benefit from this when we had to submit to this yoke our whole lives? Do you see the tension that's at play here? But this is an issue of salvation. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. 
rejoice because sinners can be justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Rejoice because this is how you were rescued from your guilt and shame. Rejoice because Christ Jesus has in fact paid the punishment for our sin in full once for all. As we have already exalted in this morning by song. Which means no matter what sin you have committed, the blood of Jesus covers it forever. If you put your faith in him. Our sin cannot keep us away from the presence of God and our righteousness cannot earn us a standing in the presence of God. We can be justified by faith alone through Christ alone forever and ever and ever. This is the good news of the gospel. Rejoice because the law-fulfilling life of Christ and his sacrificial death that we are celebrating even today in communion It has justified you before God in heaven if you have placed your faith in Christ. Rejoice because this is the message of the good news of the gospel. It is the only message of salvation and it is the truth that we are celebrating and that we will celebrate one day with some from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And we will celebrate forever and ever and ever this good news. Now, as we've seen already on multiple occasions in the book of Acts, when the word of God is proclaimed, some people receive it and many, many others reject it and immediately begin to oppose its message. But this is where the passage turns here. When the truth of the word is opposed, Paul And Barnabas, despite being the only Christians in the region, right, because this is an unreached area where the gospel is going for the first time to the ends of the earth, despite being the only Christians in the region, you might know what this feels like to a much lesser degree. Maybe within your family, you feel like you're, you and, and or you and your wife are the only believers that you know of. Or maybe your work environment is somewhat hostile to Christianity and you feel like you are alone. Or maybe in your subdivision, you're the only believer you're aware of. Whatever the case is, Paul and Barnabas, despite being the only Christians in the entire region, they don't just keep their heads down and walk away quietly. They don't, they don't say to each other, uh, these guys are absolutely contradicting what we're saying. I mean, I don't want to come off as intolerant. I don't want to come off as insensitive. And I really don't want to come off as the weird religious guys. You know, maybe we should just not say anything. Rather, verse 46 says, both Paul and Barnabas They spoke out boldly. Sometimes when we share the gospel, we need to do so with exceeding tenderness and tremendous compassion. 
But there are other times when it is exceedingly clear that we need to offer a warning and we need to state the truth right out front as boldly as the Spirit commands us. Paul and Barnabas tell those who are opposing them that you are judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life because you have thrown aside the gospel of salvation. In other words, they're telling them the truth despite the risks, which for them, in this case, undoubtedly, potentially were their own lives. In our call to worship, Simeon declared of Jesus and to God, I have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then Simeon went on to say to Mary, the mother of Jesus, behold, this child is appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. He is the ultimate dividing line. The command of Jesus in Acts 1.8 to serve as his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, in many ways is a fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy. Similarly, Paul and Barnabas seek to fulfill Acts 1.8 by, by quoting Isaiah 49.6, which, which talks about the servant of the Lord who is Jesus, and pointing out that since the Jews have rejected their message, they are bringing the light of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing because they learned that the good news of the gospel was for them. And they began glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That, this, just picturing this play out again, is because it, 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 this scene played out before them. This argument between Paul and Barnabas and the synagogue leaders and the Jewish people. And when they heard these apostles take a stand and say, fine, if you reject it, we're going to the Gentiles. This good news is for them. They erupted in praise to God. This is nothing less than exhilarating. So as one of your shepherds, I rejoice that at some point in your life, when you heard, when you heard the word of God, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. So our prayer as elders, our prayer as shepherds, is that one of the ways we might urge you to continue in the grace of God, verse 43, is by receiving the word of God for what it really is, the word of God. And to do so every single Sunday, when we gather together as a body on Sunday, think about it. We call our body to worship by exhorting us from a specific passage from the word of God. We sing songs that exult in the truths that we will be proclaiming from the word of God. Then we read another passage from God's word and we often pray into that passage during our elder prayer time as we prepare to receive the offering, then we hear God's word declared every Sunday as we teach through books from God's word every single Sunday. 
So, by the way, if you want to bring a friend to River Oaks, because what you're hoping is they'll hear the goodness of the gospel from God's word. Bring them any Sunday you want from this day forward because we'll be preaching from God's word and we'll be preaching about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want your friend to get a sense of what the preaching at River Oaks is like, have them pick any sermon. They can go back a decade. Pick any one of the sermons off the website. Because there will be two things happening in that message. One, the word of God will be proclaimed. And two, the gospel pointing to Jesus will be the focus of that message. Because we have nothing else to say. Who cares what I think about anything? We care about everything that God's word says. We respond to the preached word as we're led by the spirit. And we close with a final word at the end of our worship services, from God's word. So in this very simple liturgy, our desire is to give us multiple opportunities to be impacted by God's word so that we might respond by the power of the spirit with joy and we might glorify the triune God in our hearts. That's why we do it. So brothers and sisters, may we as the people of God be the most joyful and the most thankful people on earth for God's word and may we glorify God's word by being obedient to it and sharing it with as many people as possible. In today's culture, one of the ways we can glorify God and his word is to be prepared to stand firm in its truth. The threats we are facing in our nation and in our schools and in our workplaces uh, and in the public square, they are more than just religious liberty issues, as important as those are. They are, in many cases, grotesque violations of the word of God. In other words, this is an issue between lies and the truth of God's word. Therefore, because it's the word of God and his truth that is at stake, we must stand firm. The world needs our boldness in this current cultural moment more than it needs our bemoaning everything that's being lost in the culture because of the cultural revolutionaries. They need winsomeness, not whining from us as the people of God, no matter how disheartening it is to us. As the people of God, with respect to issues like the atrocity of abortion or or the denigration of marriage and, and the moral and scientific confusion around gender fluidity, for the sake of those who are lost, we need to be far less concerned about being on the right side of history and far more concerned about being on the right side of reality. So Christian leaders and doctors and scientists and professors and journalists and business executives, not to mention carpenters and dentists and assembly line workers and plumbers, as well as students and neighbors, we all need to be ready to stand firm on the truth of God's word and let God's word accomplish its redemptive purposes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our job is simply to testify to the truth. 
the Holy Spirit handles all of the transformation. The Word of God is the ultimate dividing line. But we, as the people of God, we don't know. We don't know who will fall on which side of the dividing line. But if we don't share the Word of God, we are doing a tremendous disservice to people. Because they won't know the reality of what God's Word actually says. The reason we should do this is because when we share the truth of God's word, look at verse 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is how people come to saving faith in Christ. Now, notice in this particular passage that man's responsibility and God's sovereignty as it relates to eternal life are both taught with absolute clarity in this passage. When people thrust aside the gospel message as proclaimed from God's word, they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Verse 46, there is man's responsibility. And at the same time, as many as are appointed or conferred or granted salvation by God, they believe, verse 48, and there is God's sovereignty, his glorious sovereignty over salvation. Therefore, we alone, we alone are to blame when we reject the gospel message, and God alone is to be praised when the gospel is received by faith. That's what this passage teaches. Now, in a pattern that we have seen, and, and we will see again repeated throughout Acts uh, in verses 49 through 52, as the gospel is preached with conviction and with passion, it spreads and brings joy and the presence of the Holy Spirit with it wherever it goes. That is to all who receive it. And at the same time, the gospel is opposed with equal conviction and equal passion by those who reject it. So as a final bold statement, Paul and Barnabas shake off the dust from their feet because their job here for now in this town is over. So they move on to the next one. Since the word of the Lord is always living and always active, they head to Iconium prepared to stand firm in its truth and to spread its message. May we do exactly the same thing to the glory of the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit.